All right, church, let's stand on our feet. I'm going to read out of Acts chapter 11. Who is blessed? Who is happy? All right, we're going to read Acts chapter 11, verse 19. If you have your Bibles, you can open those. If not, you can look on the screen. It's talking about the church in Antioch. So then, those who were scattered, say scattered. Scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and so they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. When he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. We're going to jump a chapter to chapter 13 and read three more verses. Again, speaking to Antioch. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then when they laid hands on them and prayed, they laid their hands on them. When they'd fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. All right, we were praying this in pre-service prayer. I want everybody to put your hand on your head and say, Lord, teach me what I already know. Amen. Teach us, God. Teach us what we already know. So we have been in Acts for about two or three months. We're going to continue Acts because I think this book is a stick of dynamite for our community and God is using it to disciple us into his mission in the world. Amen? Who wants to become uh, Acts 29 church? Yeah, meaning we're just continuing the story that started all those years ago. All right, we started the first part of Acts. The first kind of section is it's uh, the section of the Holy Spirit. It's where Luke is trying to set up how the leadership of the church went from Jesus being there in his physical presence to leading through people filled with the Holy Spirit. Right, the second part of Acts, we looked at this whole section of, uh, of, of Luke setting up the church as a new temple that has a new spirit and a new movement and a new message of resurrection and a new way to pray and a new way to steward finances and a new way to do community and a new way to do leadership. It's a conti- continually new thing that God has done in the church. Amen? Then there's this persecution. Stephen is martyred and that persecution scatters the church. Say scatters. Good news. There's a theme we're going to see here as we start jumping into the mission. It goes from 
from the Holy Spirit section one, section two, this new thing, and then the third section is mission, and it's mission in response to persecution. I have good news, just a little caveat here. Sometimes I think, I'm just gonna say it, Americans are soft. American church is soft. You know, you go overseas and you're worth the persecuted church and you just realize, why are they so much happier even though life is so much more challenging? And, and, and there's just this sense that we're like afraid in America. I, I talk to America, well, like, we're going to be persecuted. This is, da, da, da. I'm like, the best thing that could happen to the American church is persecution. The best thing that could happen. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Wherever the church is resisted, it multiplies. Wherever the enemy comes against the church in seven new ways, the gospel innovates to bring resurrection power to those that are lost and broken. I just want to speak to us. We are living in a Babylon. We are living in a non-Christian nation. We should expect persecution. We should expect to look a little different than culture. We should expect people to sneer at us and to scoff at us, that we would believe something so elementary as the resurrection from the dead and bank our entire lives on it and be willing to look different and to believe different and to walk different in a way that people might make fun of us and reject us. That we would be a church who would rejoice when we are ridiculed and outcasted for the name of Jesus. It is the persecuted church that multiplies and scatters in the earth. We don't need to be afraid, amen? So that's one theme. I'm not going to jump into that. But persecution triggers mission. We see this other theme start to emerge as we start jumping into this narrative of, of these, the more missional aspects post the martyrdom of Stephen. And right now I'm telling you these things because I'm teaching you how to read the book of Acts. If you listen to what I'm saying, it's going to shape the way that you're reading the text. And the text will shape the way you live your life. That was, that was good. Write that down. Someone needs to write that down. All right, and the, the, so this theme, persecution equals gospel advancement. Second theme I just want to bring to your eyes quickly is there's this tension between heritage and innovation. And we start seeing that as, as the gospel starts going to new places, there's this tension. And the church in Jerusalem finds themselves in these series of predicaments where God does new things in new ways they weren't expecting. And they're like, is this okay? Right? So Jesus says, you know, you're going to preach the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, yeah? As the gospel goes to Samaria, they're like, we don't know what we think of this. And they hear the gospel's going there. So they send the apostles, and it's almost like, go check it out. Okay, this is good. The gospel's going. Right? Then the gospel goes to Caesarea, like further away, and it goes to this guy named Cornelius, and, and Peter walks into a Gentile home, and he preaches the gospel, and he baptizes them, and then there's like this whole discussion. They're like, is this okay? This is wrong. You're doing it bad. This is, right? Have you read this? There's tension. We're finding the tension because mission creates tension in the church because for God to do the new thing, we have to make sense of how the new thing works in light of the old thing. And so uh, this culminates even further with the church of Antioch, which we're going to talk about Antioch quite a bit tonight. But Antioch is this church that's totally different from the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is concerned with how do we preserve, how do we walk out the heritage of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. They have this like generational story and then Jesus completely surprises them and they're like, how do we walk out faith in Jesus in light of the heritage that we've received, the faith that's been passed down through literally thousands of years? That's a serious question, yeah? 
So they're trying to make sense of this. They're, they're, it's not that they're not missional, it's that they're a little more concerned with heritage than Antioch is. And so now in Antioch, you have these unnamed new people that just start scattering and they start doing things that has never happened before. They start preaching the gospel to full Greeks. Like the gospel had been preached to Greeks that had been, they, they were proselytized, so they, they had been, um, they, they'd become Jews. Greeks who had adopted the Jewish way had heard the gospel, but they start going to straight heathen polytheistic Greeks, like Greeks who believed in Zeus. And you know all the stories like Hercules? Who loves Disney Hercules? Come on. It's completely heathen. Don't feed it to your children. It will corrupt them. Right? These are Greeks. They believe in Hercules. They believe in Zeus. They believe in all this like crazy stuff. And now they're like, Jesus. And so you got this church in Antioch that the church in Jerusalem is like all Jewish people and it's led by the apostles. And you get the feeling as you read the text in Acts, it's a little more institutional. Like they, they have like these formal councils to make decisions. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, it kind of feels like robust. Call the apostles. It's very top-down structured. It's beautiful. It's the, it's the first church, right? Antioch's like grassroots. It's like, who are these people? What's happening there, right? It says that the news of this gathering of unnamed individuals reaches the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they're like, Barnabas, go check it out. <laughs> what is happening in Antioch, right? And Barnabas gets there and he's like, jaw dropped, it's like the grace of God. The grace of God is upon this grassroots, no-name people movement that's full of Gentiles and Jews and has polytheistic worldviews intermingled with monotheistic worldviews and all these new messes, and they're probably doing church way different than they were doing in Jerusalem. You know what I mean? These people probably aren't with their curls reading Torah and Sabbathing together. These people are like, so Zeus isn't God? Right? Like, these people are like straight from Hercules, all of a sudden like, Jesus. Like, can you imagine there's a whole lot of innovation that needs to, questions that are coming, how do we disciple this community in Antioch? Yeah? So do you see, there's this tension, and, and Luke is very like explicit, you'll see it. There's multiple exchanges between this new church of Antioch and the old church of Jerusalem. And it's really significant that Luke shows us again and again, they get along really well. Jerusalem affirms the church in Antioch, and Antioch is loyal and honors and serves, sends sacrificial offering to honor the church of Jerusalem. They participated together hand in hand, and they had to work out what it meant. How, how does the new thing express itself in light of the heritage, and how does heritage innovate to be a new thing? See, this doesn't always happen in the body of Christ. This is the same tension between, you know, generations, between sometimes denominations, is oftentimes the innovation has to divorce from the heritage. And this is the truth. If heritage and innovation are divorced, then the gospel never leaves Jerusalem. If it's just heritage, the gospel never goes to the end of the world. It just is a Jewish thing for Jewish people of a new Jewish Messiah. But if innovation is divorced from heritage, then I'll tell you what would have happened. The church would have been polluted and diluted into the pantheon of their polytheistic culture. It, 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 like, like it would have become the next New Age movement with this like Jesus woven into the spirituality of all the other stuff they had going on. Right? So God marries together the new and the old, the old wine and the new wine, the new thing and the old thing. 
And I just say this as a comment that uh, I'm, we're going to talk a lot about Antioch. And I think that Riverhouse has a lot in common with this church. I'm going to show it. And Antioch represents this very like new thing. But it's important to recognize that it's not a new thing in the sense that it's divorced from the heritage, the faith that the book of Jude says, the faith once and for all time handed down through the saints. Like, and, and, and the goal of being a new thing is that you would be an, improv, an, an improvisational actor of the play that's been going on for 2,000 years in the church. And, and, the, and the beauty of improv is that you're doing a new thing that is completely synergistic to the whole narrative that's come before. I get, I get nervous sometimes, particularly with young people. We act, there's this idea, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, Charles Darwin mixed with spirituality, where it's like the new thing, the evolution, the new thing is better than the old thing. When the truth is that the new thing is resting on the foundation of what other people laid their lives down for. Revelation that you and I take for granted costs some people blood, sweat, and tears. You know, like for worship leaders to get up on a stage with some really nice skinny jeans and a nice tattoo on their sleeve and just shredding on the electric guitar cost other people their reputation, cost other people, like they had to fight to believe that there could be a more free expression of worship. And we've forgotten this because it was an old thing, but it used to be the new thing. And so we have to recognize this honor is so important in the body of Christ. And so we can never drift into this elitism and this arrogance of thinking, oh, because we're in Antioch, that makes us better than anybody else. Because the truth is, if you look at church history, Antioch turns into Jerusalem. And if Antioch will be the new thing that honors the heritage, when Antioch becomes Jerusalem, it will have the humility to honor the new Antioch. This is part of generational legacy. That is good. That's, that's really good. I don't have time to go depth into that, but that could be a whole message. Honor, honor is so significant in the body of Christ. Sometimes I get frustrated. I'll just be honest. Sometimes I find that the new thing movements that are clearly graced within the body of Christ are presented and articulated in a way that it makes it sound like it's the only thing. And, and I think it does damage to believers because we, we think that, to, that, that, that it's like we have to choose between the two. And it's like, no, it's one story. God's doing one story. Anyways, um, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna keep going. But the point being, Jerusalem and Antioch are, are, are intertwined. They are in beautiful relationship. Even though that there's some struggle, they, they are in unity. And that's really significant. All right, so we read these verses. Uh, are you ready to jump into Antioch? I love the church in Antioch. I think it is, it, I think it has so much for us to glean as Riverhouse um, that we're actually gonna spend a handful of weeks just looking at the church in Antioch and letting us be discipled by what this church, this cosmopolitan, they were in the middle of a city, um, the median average, what historians would say is they think it was about a 250,000 person city, which would have been pretty big in the ancient world, but not like massive. We're not talking New York City. We're probably talking something maybe more like Boise, maybe a little bigger than Boise in antiquity, but it's a cosmopolitan city. It was in a trade route and um, it had all types of different peoples in it. And this is like the first church. It's multicultural, multi-ethnicity, all these different worldviews swirling around. And it is just this incredible, it becomes this incredible church that is the hub for the missional expansion of the gospel throughout the Mediterranean world. It operates as an apostolic resource center. 
Right, so I'm just going to go through quickly a list of the activities that we find taking place within the church of Antioch. Right? So the first thing we see in Acts 11, which we read, is that they were reaching new people that had never, ever been reached before. They were actually innovating. They were, they were, like, they were like doing something that had never been done. Just as, and some people decided to preach to Greeks. They're like, what will happen? Oh, they're all getting saved. <laughs> it's like, what, now what? Right? Um, and so, they're, they're, and I, so we, I hear evangelism in that, and I hear ministry to the world. Right? If we, if we put that mountain back up. I'm just going to keep referencing this mountain. So I want it so deep in us. Right? So they're ministering to the world. The next thing we see in Acts 11 is that Barnabas goes and gets Paul out of hiding. Paul has been uh, with the Lord for 10 to 14 years at this point, post-conversion. And this is a word for somebody in here. And suddenly, Barnabas remembers this young man, Paul, who used to be a terrorist who got saved. And he goes and he pulls Paul, Saul, out of hiding and puts him on a platform in leadership to fulfill his destiny. Right? You don't have to make your destiny. You don't have to make your calling happen. The Lord will do it in his time. He will send a Barnabas and an end suddenly will happen faster than you know it. All that matters is that you become the message. And when you become the message, God will make you a messenger. Woo! I'm preaching right now. That, that was free. That was completely free. That's not even the message. All right? So we see that Paul and Barnabas get there, and they teach the church in Antioch for an entire year. Say an entire year. Right? When I hear teaching the church for a year, I hear discipleship. I hear, wow, this church is like, they're not just saving people and bringing them in. They are discipling them thoroughly. The leaders are committed to it, and the people are hungry for it. They're being taught the word of the Lord, all right? Then we jump to Acts 13. We're told that prophets and teachers are getting along. Woo! Woo! This is amazing, right? And, and, and how it's written, if you get into the text, is it's not as distinct as we think. It's almost like it's meant to blur together and show us that the leaders were so permeated together that they were all versed in the scripture, theologically minded, able to teach the word, and prophetically sensitive. It's not so much like, oh, there's the prophets over there and there was the teachers. It was like they'd come together and they had an ecosystem of the word and the spirit. Because this is the truth. Prophets and teachers are both called to do the same thing. Proclaim the word of the Lord. This, this, all this, this separation, right? You see this togetherness. I'm like, oh, Acts 13, baby. Do it, Lord. Right? So prophets and teachers are together. It was a church leadership, which would mean the, the leadership would be speaking indicative of the whole church. They were a word spirit church. Beautiful. We've talked about this for years around here. Right? They're ministering to the Lord and fasting. Say ministering to the Lord. Is that in our vision? Oh my gosh, it is. It's amazing. Right? This is priestly language. That word ministering to the Lord, the only other place it shows up is in the tabernacle, the temple, David's tent, of priest ministering to God. Acts 15 later, when they're having a little bit of a tussle, some theological dissension, they literally quote Amos 9, talking about Antioch, and they say, God said he was going to restore David's tent, which was a place where with unveiled faces, they were ministering, prayer, worship, they were a people of the presence. They were literally saying, this Antioch community is a house of prayer. It's a, it's a place of worship. It's a temple of the Most High God. They're priests. Woo! This is so good. 
I love this. They were a people of God's presence. They were a restoration of David's tent. They were ministering to the Lord right there, top of the mountain. All right? Acts 13, after the ministry of the Lord, the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, send them away. Say, send them away. Away with emphasis. Say it again. Do you realize how crazy this is? This is the greatest theologian in the history of the church. This is the man who wrote half the New Testament. This is the man who who became the, the presiding eminent apostle of the Mediterranean world. And they sent him away? What was going to happen to Antioch? That'd be like me telling you all, I'm not prepping you for some surprise. That'd be like me saying, hey guys, the elders were praying last week and they're sending me away. Would you guys, what would you feel? Some of you would be like, thank you, God. <laughs> no, no, but right, like this would be shocking. This is, this is Paul. Well, he's Saul, but he's about to be Paul. They're like sending the, the head guy away. And they don't just do it once. <laughs> they do it three times in the book of Acts. Woo! Like there's something going on here. They had an apostolic perspective. I'm going to focus on this a little bit more. But they were thinking in a way that I think most people in Western church don't think. They were not thinking Antioch-centric. They had an apostolic vision where they were thinking globally. They were filled with God's perspective for his plan in the world. And so they were willing to send Paul away. And I would say if what, what happens at leadership is indicative of the whole church. An apostolic perspective tells us, it informs us, you can only keep what you're willing to give away. They were willing to give their best away. God will only multiply and bless what we give to him. All right, so they sent him away. Again, so this would be church planting. This would be not only were they concerned with their house and their city, they knew that there were other cities that they were called to resource their transformation. They were willing to give away what had become precious to them. Right, Acts 15, a little bit later, uh, we find that there's two prophets who uh, give a lengthy message of encouragement to the church. So again, you see discipleship, you see ministry to one another. We find that Acts, uh, Paul and Barnabas, uh, later they're instructed again that they, they were teaching and preaching the word. So you hear this discipleship. So you see this whole mountain showing up. You see this very robust ecosystem within the Antiochian church where they were ministering to the Lord. They were being discipled. They were being formed and fashioned within community to become love like he was love. And then they were willing to give it all away to the world to be a, a, a conduit of God's transformative power. Who wants to be a part of Antioch? Five of you do. We'll start another church down the street and the rest of you can do something else. I'm teasing, all right? So, so I, wanna, I, wanna, I wanna make some, some explicit like connections to what does this mean for us? And I wanna specifically zero in. We're gonna, we're gonna zero in on a few of these components that I just detailed to you because it's kind of our vision um, in the coming weeks. But I want to zero in tonight on what does it mean to be a people with apostolic perspective? I want us all to think the same thing when we hear those, wor- those words. Because I think that we can hear those words, yeah, 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 apostolic perspective. And we're like, well, what, what, does that, what does that actually mean? Like, what are we talking about? And I, I just want us to know, I want us this to be settled in us, that we are starting to get our heads up out of just this church-centric paradigm that is so like crusty and infused. It's like dry 
bread. It's like, it's not fresh. It's not taste good. It's like, nobody wants to eat this. We need fresh focaccia. We need like a new paradigm. We need to see the church for what the church is. Like, I just feel like we've settled for this really uninspiring, crusty vision of church. And it's like boring. And it's like, God's like, let me get my bride out of this box so you can see who you are. I'm telling you, I I grew up with this crusty paradigm. And I was so uninspired by church that when people started telling me, I think you're called to the church, I would literally be like, that is so nice. No. I'm serious, because I'm like, I'm so uninspired by church. And it wasn't until it was like a, it was multiple years of the Lord having to do this shift of a paradigm for me to start to see that the church is the hope of transforming the world. And it, and it doesn't mean that you preach on Sundays. It means you think apostolically and you recognize that you're a royal priest called to cultivate a heaven on earth reality and that God wants you to be a living conduit, that that Ezekiel 47 river just keeps flowing through you and it flows into dead things and it makes it swarm with fish. I've been to the Dead Sea. I got salt in my eye because that, that stuff's so salty. They have like these little, these little you got to run to the beach and like shoot your eyes out because you'll go blind because there's so much salt. It says when that river touches the Dead Sea, this is Ezekiel 47, that Dead Sea will start to swarm with fish. That is resurrection life. That is the Holy Spirit in and through you. That's what it means to be a part of the church. We should live with an expectation that if we will follow the story, if we'll live the story, if we will minister to the Lord, if we will be discipled and disciple, and then we will go where he sends us, living with the dream of God at the forefront of our minds, that river will show up and dead things start coming to life. Because it's finished, we sing it. He was crucified, he was resurrected. We just get to work out that achievement. Like we somehow, or he's like, yeah, now I pick you. Like it's done, now you go live it out. Jesus is like, I gave my life because I wanna live it in you now. Like me? Yeah, you. Yeah, you. He wants to live his life through you. Wow, what a calling, what a privilege. I don't know where I am right now, but it doesn't matter. All right, so, so, okay, apostolic vision. I want you to say these two words. Say global transformation. Global transformation. Global transformation. When you hear apostolic vision, I want you to think, And I want you to picture me doing this nice curtsy, okay? Global transformation, right? Let's get, let's just like sink this down to pill form. This is apostolic vision. Your kingdom come, your will be done on as it is in heaven coming to earth. This is Jesus's vision, that earth would look like heaven, that the realm of heaven would completely saturate earth and that the glory of God would cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Global transformation. Okay, so when we say global, we're we're speaking to the earth. you You can't think of church as this little gathering of people. That's part of the church. 
right? But you have to think of church as called out people with a global mandate, meaning your life means something in the earth. Somewhere in the earth, you've been given authority, you've been given an assignment, you've been given something to steward, someone to steward. You've been given community, a family, friendships, a vocation where you're doing your job. Like, like you have been given a calling in the earth. That's part of what the church is. So this is part of why you can only keep what you're willing to give away because you can't just keep it for you. You're called to give it away in the way that you steward the earth, okay? So global, it's not just the house of God. You have to see something bigger than that, right? And then transformation, The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of God's plan to redeem everything. Nothing's beyond redemption. Nothing is beyond redemption. And God will call us into places that, and into things that we could never, ever, ever do in a million years in our own strength. God does not call us to what is possible. He calls us to what is impossible. And the only thing he says to all of our excuses and our da-da-da is, I'll be with you. He doesn't listen to our excuses. He doesn't listen to our inadequacies. We think far more of our inadequacies than he does. We think far more of our disqualifications than he does. He qualified us by the blood. He says, I'll be with you. Go. I'm not just preaching to you. I'm living this out. We shared a testimony or an announcement earlier of a nation that we're going to where I feel completely in over my head times a million. God says, I'm there. Just keep going. God is calling us into audacious visions, into audacious dreams and plans that we have no business doing in our own strength. But it's not our business. It's working out what he did on the cross. And he's saying, I want to make all things new, and I pick you. Global transformation. Global transformation. Right? So the house of God, the church, is the bridge. It's the outpost. It's the headquarters of this vision of global transformation. That little mountain. It's, it's where heaven and earth come together. And so we gather and we ascend the hill of the Lord to minister to him, to love him, to Sabbath rest in him, to enjoy him, to be loved by him, to cultivate true, deep, profound intimacy. Like he is heaven. He is the source of life. Heaven is him. And he comes down himself, the very best of heaven, descends as we ascend and we experience life in the presence of God, right? But you can only keep what you're willing to give away. You don't just ascend and stay there. That's not this life. That's the life to come. That's the heaven and earth together when there's no more tears and there's no more pain and there's no more suffering. And so we are called, we get to come week after week to the hill of the Lord to experience his presence like we experienced tonight, to behold him. And I think that there's greater heights that we can explore, but we, we experience him. We, we love him. We're loved by him. Like the, it's heaven and earth connect as we ascend the hill of the Lord. Right? And then we work that out in community. Right? It's not good for man to be alone. 
Adam had perfect relationship with God in the garden. Perfect. He, he went on morning walks with God every day. Like imagine that, hand in hand, walking with God. And yet in that place, God said, it's not good for you to be alone. And he gave him a call, cultivate community. And that's the church. This is Jesus. Jesus had perfect relationship with God, yet he spent most of his time hanging out with some knuckleheads. Loving them. He told him at the end of his life, I don't call you servants, you're my friends. And that word friend isn't just friendship, it's like intimacy. It's like, you're my people. Like, I love you. I disclose myself to you. The Garden of Gethsemane, he's like, will you come with me? He had real intimacy, he had real relationships. They will know that you sent me by their love. John 17, high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying that we would be intertwined and we'd become the same type of community that God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we just are becoming the family that he is. Right, and then go, go, go to the ends of the earth, go to Jerusalem, go to Judea, go to Samaria, go to the ends of the earth. And what do you do when you go? You preach the gospel, you share your testimony, you, 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 you give away that which is precious to you. That's the church. So the church is very dynamic. It's not just this like static, oh, we... We meet in Garden City, 4 p.m. Woohoo. River House. That's, that's not River House. River House is every place that you are touching in this city on a weekly basis. You know, I, I'll just tell a few stories with none names of just people. There's, there's there, uh, an individual in our community that God is exalting within the, the legislative structure of our city and within the things in, in all around the area of, of sex trafficking literally being used to influence people who are making big decisions, like, train, like it's, it's profound, it's heaven's coming to earth, that's, that's the church, that's, that's our church, that's River House. There's entrepreneurs in our church that are creating a, a coffee shop right now to be a thin space where heaven and earth will come together in a central meeting place in our valley where it's gonna attract people that are far from Jesus and they're gonna come into a place that's been made for the name of Jesus. I, I, I met with a family in our church who looked at me and said, God is calling us to a nation where it's currently really scary and persecuted and we're willing to give our lives and die for his name and we're gonna go to a place far across this world that's gonna be unfamiliar and foreign and scary, but they, they have a call and they're gonna go with, with kids, with young kids. That's River House, that's our church. Individual in our church has a small business sharing with me how she's in people's homes for her business and God's doing this, this identity work that's breaking off insecurity and fear and she's praying new prayers and seeing new blessings show up in the way that she's running her business and God's blessing it and the way that she's praying and ministering to people through how God's blessing it and the doors they're opening. That's, that's the church. That's River House. That means just as much to God as the sermons that I'm preaching. Like each individual part, when it works itself out, the body matures in love and heaven comes to earth. Right? Like the whole thing matters. 
This is so good. This is what I'll give my life for, you guys. Okay, it's 5.50. Wow. I'm just getting lost up here. All right, so there is a tension. There's a tension, and in the tension, we got to create a rhythm in an apostolic perspective, and it's, it's a tension of gathering, say gather, and scatter, say scatter. Gather and scatter, gather and scatter. There's a tension of infrastructure. We have to build structures. We have to nourish the community, right? Like if our community, like we need physical infrastructure. We got a word about building a barn, like we need a barn, we don't have enough spaces to do the ministry that God's calling us to. We can't disciple the way we want to disciple right now because we don't have the space to do it. Physical space. We need physical infrastructure. We need soft infrastructure, spiritual culture, anointing, leadership, time for the culture to get into us. So you've got to build infrastructure to support the family, the body, the house. But then innovation. You've got to go and do a new thing. We've got to pioneer. We've got to go. There is a go in the gospel. I've been living this tension for seven years. You know how I've been, I've been, I can't say the, where I go, but you know where I go. I'm going next week. And that's the best thing that can happen for all of us. Because God's grace is bigger. It's not about a person. It's about the river of God's grace that's falling upon a priesthood. And we got to go, but there's a tension, right? You got to nourish the church. You got to go. Infrastructure, innovation. I think there's one more I had in there. Discipleship and mission, right? We got to disciple our house, but then we got to go get new people. And then they come and we got to disciple them, right? So there's going to be times, there's going to be rhythmic times where we're going to like find ourselves like, are we doing a discipleship or are we doing mission? Yes. Are we building infrastructure or are we innovating? Yes. Are we gathering or are we scattering? Yes. It's all about rhythm. And I've had a lot of people say, I know that like we've been on this ministry to the Lord thrust. Amen. It's never going to stop. We're going to thrust forever. I want to go as high as we possibly can into the heart of God. I, 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 wanna, I want us to build a house of prayer on the top of that mountain that everybody for a 500 miles around that place knows that God is in that house and you can go there and drink of his manifest presence. So we are never going to stop. We are building a house of prayer. And I believe there's going to be a day where we have prayer sets going all throughout the week. And people are going to come from all over the world to receive what's being cultivated by a priesthood who's learning to minister to the Lord praying fast. Woo! That's good news. But then I hear people saying, well, what about the mission? When are we going to do mission? We're going to do mission. But we've been building infrastructure. And I honestly think that this seven-year shift, I think the, next seven, the last seven years primarily, we have been building infrastructure for a house of God, for a family, for a house of prayer, for a community, trying to figure out who we are. And then we've been touching mission. Touching mission. It's always been there. It's always been there. We started Riverhouse Global the same time we started the church. But I think that there's a tipping point taking place. And I think the next seven years, we're going to see more mission than what we even can imagine. And I think some of that mission is going to take place formally. Like maybe Riverhouse will create a school. Like we have that word. I I do think in the next seven years, I think we're going to have an elementary school. Uh, Maybe a high school. I don't know. Like, Like God said it. So I'm just reiterating it. Right? So and some of that may be things that are structurally like Riverhouse creates. But I think that most of the mission is going to be what you create out there with your life, with what you're doing. Like you're the move. You're the mission. 
Are you willing to give away that which is precious to you? All right, I'm gonna close this up and then, and then, and then, and then we're just gonna create a space for the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So I just wanna say this. As we're, as, we're, as we're learning to scatter, I think the next seven years we're gonna learn how to scatter really well. We're, learn, we're gonna learn how to go because there's individual things, but I think that there's groups of you. There's some things that you're gonna build together that you need together to build. That's why you gotta have family, you gotta have community because there's things you can do together you can't do by yourself, right? But we're gonna learn how to scatter with the Holy Spirit. But these are my question for you, Riverhouse, for all of us, for each and every one of us is are you willing to give away that which is precious to you? I hear this sometimes, well, my, my friend group, so like close, we're so close, so intimate. We don't wanna mess it up. Are you willing to give that which is precious to you? Because you can only keep what you're willing to give away. Some of your house churches are gonna be so beautiful and God's gonna say, send people out. Well, I don't wanna lose this. You can only keep what you're willing to give away. God's gonna call some of you into financial things that make no sense. Are you willing to keep? You can only keep what you're willing to give away. Like, are you willing to sow that which is precious to you? Because this is the thing. God can only multiply what you give to him. There is multiplication in the sowing, in the breaking. As you give the bread, Jesus breaks the bread and the bread multiplies. But if you keep it in your hands, he can't bless it. He can't multiply it. God challenges me. You know that I'm a naturally introverted soul? If I had it my way, I'm serious. I would preach about half the year and I would try to find a way to live in Maui for the other third of the year and then a really nice golf course, somebody else the rest of the year and I would have my Zen time with Jesus. I would like have the deepest connection. I'd bring these like holy revelations to the church and I'd be like, there you go. I will see you all next summer. I'm serious, and this is where the Holy Spirit taps on my shoulder. I know you're introverted, but I've called you to give your life away to other people. And he asked me, well, will you give it away? Will you give that which is most precious to you for the sake of other people? Will you go to places and nations that you don't wanna go and where you sometimes have to risk your life even though I have a precious little girl that I never like to leave those little eyes? Will you go, will you give your life away? That's my question for us as a church, and I'm posing it to myself as well. We can only keep what we're willing to give away, but that takes faith. If we open up our hands, will he give it to us back? He will, but we have to let go of control. That's the cost of apostolic vision. This is my second question, is how are you relating with our city? Those of you that are gatherers, community builders, I know you have a call to the house of God, but how are you relating to the city? Entrepreneurs, business leaders, how are you relating to our city? Teachers, mothers, fathers, how are you relating to our city? Artists, how are you relating to your city? With, with any of your spiritual gifts, right? Like, I'm a shepherd, I'm called to take care of the body. Yes, you are, but you're also called to shepherd the city because we're an apostolic church called to... You have been given a ministry to the house of the Lord, but you've been given a ministry to the city. How are you stewarding it? All right, we have prophetic words of education, of arts, of entertainment, of like, listen to the birthday service again and again and again and recognize that that was God speaking to you. And some of you are like, well, I don't know how that's ever gonna happen. It's gonna happen by a little yes. 
10 years ago this week, I got off a plane, I, I, I flew home from Africa, and I had two prophetic words. It was a word that I was going to build the Lord a house, and that I was going to preach to hundreds of thousands of people. I had no ministry. I preached in the back church of the church that I grew up in, in the back room on Sunday nights, and there was five people that were coming. But I had a dream. God said I was going to build him a church, and I was going to preach to hundreds of thousands of people. I had no idea how I would do any of those. I had no business doing any of those. I had no background. I had no pedigree. I had nothing. I'd never even been taught how to preach a sermon. But I had a dream. And it wasn't my dream. It was his dream. And I was a prisoner of hope. He said, this is what I've called you to do. And I wanted to quit. And I wanted to give it up. And I wanted to say, this is way too big for me, God. And then I read stinking Reinhard Bonnke's book. And he tells this story how God told him, you're going to preach to multitudes and you're going to feed masses of people across the African continent. He was like a nine-year-old boy. And his father said, you're not a preacher. My firstborn will be a preacher. You're not my firstborn. You won't be a preacher. And he's devastated because his own dad wouldn't believe the dream that God had given him. And he said he's sitting, he lived on a little town in Germany on the Rhine River. And he went down to the docks and there was this massive ship on the dock. And he was sitting there, hot tears crying, saying, God, God, you're, you didn't tell me the truth. Like, this isn't your promise. My own dad won't believe me. And he got so angry, he just stood up and he just pushed the ship. And the ship just started to move. And then he heard the voice of God. He said, it doesn't matter what man tells you. He said, if you believe my word, I will move mountains and I will do impossibilities through your life. I read that story. I said, okay. Okay. If you can take five people in a back room Sunday night. You can do what you said. Do it. He's done it. He's done it. He's done it. And now I realize that wasn't the big, that was just the, that was just the, that was just the visions that were supposed to be the foundation for me to say, now are you really ready to dream? And I say this as a testimony to you. I am a nobody. A nobody. Nobody. But I believe God. God is not looking for qualified people. He's looking for willing vessels that will say yes. God is looking for people that he can impregnate with his dream to bring. That's a really big dream. There's no scarcity of callings from God because he's wanting to bring which means there's enough pie for all of us to have not just a slice, but probably our own pie. I find the church is like, oh, I just don't know. If I really have a powerful calling. God wants to bring global transformation. I'm pretty sure there's space for you to have a really powerful calling. He's just looking for a yes. So if that yes is in your heart, I want you to respond to the Holy Spirit tonight. I don't know what that means. So if, I'm gonna ha I, I told Megan, I said, I want the, the, the ministry team tonight ready. I think that the Lord wants to quicken a prophetic imagination tonight. We got this word on the birthday service that we would be a house of dreamers, a house of Josephs, people that God would give dreams to serve the pharaohs of the world, to bring transformation to our world. If that's you, if you're like, I want to be a Joseph, I want to be a dreamer, I just have a sense that the Lord is wanting to quicken and 
sprinkle some color and, and, and bring about like a prophetic imagination that we start to imagine with the mind of Christ and let the dream of God actually take root inside of you and say yes to it tonight. It might be a reaffirming, it might be a first thing, but I sense that the Holy Spirit wants to speak. I'm gonna have the team uh, ready. They're just gonna, they're gonna release. They are going to prophesy. And I want them to prophesy boldly. I want the Lord to use their mouths to just speak little seed promises that are gonna stir your imaginations to believe that God has called you to be a part of his apostolic vision to bring to all things and make it new. So if you want to respond, maybe just start playing the keys. And I just want you to stand. And that's just, you're standing, as, you're, just, you're just presenting yourself. Like almost, you're enlisting to the Lord and say, it's like Isaiah, here I am. Send me. And I want you to just open, like open your imagination to God. If you want to respond, if you want to, if you want to come forward, that will cue the ministry team that you're wanting them to pray for you. Um, but you don't need to. If you just want to worship, I just want you to worship. I just, this is just space to really connect with God. Because I believe this, that it's those that will go up the mountain in ministry to the Lord and praise, worship, and prayer. It's, it's those that will go up the mountain that will hear the Holy Spirit saying, here's what you're called to do and sending them away. Like Paul didn't just come up with this idea to go evangelize the known world. They were ministering to the Lord and in that ministry to the Lord, God spoke, the Holy Spirit spoke. So I just wanna invite you right now to actually just minister to the Lord. If you wanna come forward, minister to the Lord. Just give yourself as an offering to Jesus and create space for the voice of the Lord to speak and to meet you right where you're at and to prophesy, to prophesy to you. So Holy Spirit, I just ask that you will quicken and awaken the imagination of your church tonight, that we will begin to dream the dreams of God, that we will begin to see the church in a new way, that we will begin to see ourselves in a new way, God, and that you will teach us how to gather and scatter in the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's just worship him and we're going to create space. He's going to move tonight. And if you want to go, you're free to go. It's kind of soft release tonight, but we're going to worship. <laughs>